Well, have you ever wondered if this is all worth it? That is following Jesus. Have you ever wondered if following Jesus actually pays? Worshiping the one true and living God, trusting what He's promised, obeying what He commands, getting up in the morning, opening up the Bible to seek to hear from Him, seeking God in prayer, going to work each morning, giving yourself tirelessly, day by day, faithfully, often thanklessly, to diligent, honest work. If you're a stay-at-home mom, staying home and ordering the house and teaching your children diligently, often tirelessly, being faithful to your spouse, forgiving as Christ has forgiven us, loving your brothers and sisters, not despising in return when you receive harm, refraining from sinful activities that appear attractive in the moment. And even this morning, getting up on Sunday, gathering with God's people when the weekend already feels short, and giving a day to serve and worship God and to pour yourself out for God's people. After all of it, have you wondered, is it worth it? Have I just been duped? You know, it's not really a strange question to ask. It's not strange because there are many people in this world who are doing very well for themselves, who don't love God, who don't love people in the way that God would command us to love people, who could, quite frankly, care less about God and His ways. And at at face value, you could sort of look around and, and start to think something just doesn't quite seem right. It just kind of feels unfair. It doesn't seem balanced. So have you ever looked at it all and thought about walking away from God altogether? Walking away from the God you serve? Well, Asaph, a worship leader, likely during the time of King David, he had thought about it. One of the men who wrote many of the Psalms in the Bible, particularly Psalm 73, where we'll be this morning, he had thought long and hard about that very question. Whether or not walking in fellowship with God and in the fellowship with His people was really worth all the trouble. 12 through 14 of Psalm 73, Asaph looks out and he cries out, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. 
And all in vain have I kept my heart clean. And I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and I've been rebuked every morning. Asaph looks out and he sees the wicked. Those who have no concern for God, who don't acknowledge Him. Not not just people who are simply sinful, but those who scoff at God's mention and, and mock His existence. And what do they get? Ease and riches? And I get stricken all day long. And I get rebuked every morning. If I wander from God a mere inch, He strikes me. This is Asaph's experience, and so he's entertaining the idea that walking with God may not be worth it. But something held him back. He says his feet almost stumbled, but they didn't. Something kept him from stumbling. What was it? What was it that held Asaph back? He writes in verse 1 of the psalm and begins with his conclusion. Verse 1, he writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So the psalm begins with his conclusion, Truly God is good to His people. That, that word truly that he begins with, even in the original language, it's, it's a word that communicates strong contrast. It, it's the same word that's, that's used later in verse 23 that, that's translated nevertheless. So Asaph begins this psalm even saying, nevertheless, God is good to His people. And so the question for us this morning as we come to God's Word is, how can Asaph say that? In what way is God good to His people? In, in what way can, can we collectively as God's people here, Redeemer Church, in what way can we say, truly God is good to Redeemer Church of Grant? in spite of what we see around us, in spite of what may even happen to us, God is good. And He's for His people. What has God offered to us and given to His people that when obtained, His people can say, God is good. He is always good. And let me tell you up front, the way that we answer that question together the way we answer that question affects everything. It will affect the way that we deal with the apparent success of godless people. It will affect the way that you deal with your own affliction and suffering in this life. And it will shape the way that you deal with disappointment. It will shape the way that you deal with frustration and loss. It will determine the depth of your joy. It will shape the rootedness of your peace. It will determine the source of your love. 
It will ensure the perseverance of your faith. How we define the portion of God's people will actually determine whether or not we really even value God Himself. So if Psalm 73 doesn't shape our answer of how God is good to His people, we may stumble in the same way that Asaph almost stumbled. And yet God in His kindness inspired Asaph to write these words for us. So let's continue. Verse 2, Asaph continues saying, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph looks out and he sees what he describes in this group of people as the wicked. Not not referring to repentant sinners saved by God's grace, but sinners who hate God's law. Who mock God's grace. He looks at them all having an easy life. They have easy health. They have stress-free circumstances. They lack trouble. Their bodies seem to just work. And more than that, Asaph notices that sin is easy for them. They're not troubled. They walk exactly how they want to walk. When they break God's commands... They're not disciplined for it. They get away with it. All of it. It's like the dishonest coworker who gets promoted in front of you because they're willing to bend the truth while you weren't. The neighbor who enjoys affluence because they don't report their taxes truthfully. While maybe it feels like you tirelessly try to make ends meet day after day, honestly. The student who cheats their way successfully and graduates in front of you in your class. Maybe it's your friend on Facebook who never even thought twice about following Jesus and they seem to be happily married while it feels like your decision to follow Jesus has just consigned you to singleness for the rest of your life. Circumstances like these can make us wonder, I think, like Asaph wonders, is obedience to God really worth it? Especially when the disobedient get away with it. And what Asaph sees next is this growing unashamed Destructive arrogance. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression and they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They ask, verse 11, How can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? So for this group of people, those who don't honor God, Asaph observes that they just continue in rebellion, thinking that either A, God doesn't know, or B, if He knows, He's not really going to do anything. Their conclusion, after seeing this for a while, is I can do what I want to do. When I want to do it. However I want to. And I can reap my own reward. The reward that I want to have. And nobody tells me what to do but me. And Asaph sees it. And in the moment, he's envious. He says, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. After sitting and observing for a while, he's tempted to buy into the idea that the wicked may not be all that wicked after all. How could they be? if life seems to be so easy for them. And so, because the patience of God is taken advantage of, because the judgment of God is restrained, Asaph begins to think, verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph had spent his entire life, likely, in this pursuit of walking in the ways of God, seeking to please God, seeking to follow what God had said was was right and good in his sight, seeking to be pure in heart. When Asaph sinned, he he likely would have grieved and confessed and, and even trusted God's provision of forgiveness. So I don't think that this is Asaph claiming that he's made himself right in God's eyes. I I think this is Asaph trusting God to make him right in God's sight. I think Asaph, like Job, had walked with God by faith, and he was an upright man. He had walked in an upright way, and yet the hand of God's discipline was heavy on him. And in the sting of discipline, he's tempted to believe that there's got to be a better way. A road with less affliction, less self-denial, more ease in this life. But not just a better way personally for him. Notice this is what Asaph thought about saying publicly. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if I had brought these conclusions to the congregation of Israel, if I had said, it's not worth it. Now remember, Asaph is a worship leader in Israel. So so imagine this scene. Imagine being here this morning and Pastor Ryan coming up this morning, and addressing the church and saying, you all, this Christianity thing, it's really a waste of your time. 
it's really not worth it. It doesn't pay. And those who walk without Christ are really better off. Imagine what that would do to the room. Well, Asaph says, if I would have spoken in that manner, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He said there would have been a whole generation sitting out there if Asaph had said those things. He said, I would have betrayed them with falsehood. I would have spoken in the pain of a moment and led an entire generation astray. Well, my question for you is, have you been there? Are you there even presently, perhaps? Wondering if following Jesus is worth it. If obedience to God really does matter. Wondering if there's really any sort of gain that comes with godliness. Well, verse 16, Asaph continues, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. To, to try and reconcile this truth with such a frustrating task, straining to make sense of the reality that, that following God on, uh, often meant on this earth pain and difficulty and sorrow. And yet to reject God, to pursue your own way, to pursue your own will be done, can with it sometimes come ease. Sometimes come riches. Sometimes come prosperity. And and it was a weary task for Asaph to, to try to make sense of this. You know, I think what we can take from this is that there are few places more miserable than in our own private thoughts by ourselves trying to make sense of God in the world. There are fewer places more miserable to be than that. We will become, to use Asaph's words, embittered. He writes, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. We will be resentful angry, confused, mad at the world and mad at God, and likely never chart our own way out if we stay there. So if there's one thing that we all can take away from this psalm this morning is that we are neither great enough, nor trustworthy enough, nor wise enough to get ourselves out of places like this by ourselves. We can't be left to ourselves to interpret reality on our own. We we can't think ourselves out of places like this one. We need light for our darkness. We we need a lamp for our feet. We need our God to invade our clouded and dim vision and and bring clarity to the way that we ought to see things. We need words from God Himself. 
And I think in addition to that, we need God's people around us speaking His Word into our lives as well. I think a question that would be worth asking yourself is, is, is who are the people in my life, in this church, who I'm willingly receiving counsel from? Who I'm opening myself up to direction and correction? Who do I give permission to speak into my life? Or, or have I sort of just set things up in such a way that I'm functionally just sort of a closed book. I'm here, but those areas of my life, you can't go there. I don't want you to speak into my life in those ways. And, and then I think on the other side of that coin would be, are you yourself also seeking to know others in the church? Or do you ask questions to understand where where others are, so that you can speak even a timely word of encouragement to them. To seek to help them. To come alongside. To encourage. Rather than speaking even before you may understand somebody's pain. Well, Asaph says, when I thought about how to understand this on my own, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until. Until when? Verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned. Then I discerned. So we cannot wait until it all makes sense before we decide to go into the presence of God. We can't wait until we've figured it out on our own to then come and to approach God. It's, it's really only in God's presence, by His grace, through His Word, and with the help of His Spirit that we do come to make sense of life around us. Not all together at one moment, but one degree at a time. And this is the turning point of the psalm. From, from this place, from, from this point, God is going to show Asaph two things. He's going to show Asaph two truths, two realities. One, the final destiny of the wicked. Where that road actually goes. Though it's wide, though it's easy now, it leads to death and destruction. And he's also going to show where this other road goes. The road that's narrow, difficult, damp, uncomfortable. But how it leads to life. Truly, Asaph writes, he says, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Notice here just even God's definition of the length of our lives. What does He call it? A moment of time. A very moment. He's saying that all of this is going to come to an end. This age, this life, and God will take His seat and open the books and render judgment. 
And what he calls that span of time is merely a moment. And in a moment, he says, the wicked are destroyed. They're swept away entirely. All those who have not put their trust, who have not put their faith in Christ, will live forever in never-ending, overwhelming, consuming punishment. Eternal, everlasting, conscious torment for eternity. That's what Asaph sees. But that's not all that Asaph sees. God doesn't just show him, here's the end and the warning of the road to destruction. That's not the only thing that Asaph sees here. Is God, that's not all he's going to show him. That's not the best thing that God shows Asaph. God is also going to help Asaph see what he really promises his own people. What gospel really delivers. What really kept Asaph back from stumbling. So the realities of even these closing verses, I think are truly some of the greatest in Scripture. If you even want to think about something that you might try to do in the new year, 2021, setting these verses to memory, I think would be a great place to start. That, that, that when you, even on your deathbed, have memories fail you and can only wor- mumble certain words under your breath to recall to mind, these would be good ones to have etched on your soul as you prepare to meet the Lord. Asaph writes, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your words. The gift of the gospel, the, the portion of God's people, is God Himself. That, that's the point of this sermon. That's the point of this entire psalm. That is the point of the story of the Bible. The measure of God's grace in the life of His people is the giving of God Himself to them. The measure of faith in the hearts of God's people is is found in in receiving God as the Supreme Lord, the Savior, the refuge, our hope, our joy, our treasure, our prize, our delight. The measure of God's grace to you is in the giving of Himself 
So God's going to bring Asaph to that conclusion by showing him five truths. Five truths that serve as a ballast for our own soul. That that served as an anchor for Asaph and I think as well for us. So we'll take them one at a time. Number one, God is with us. God is with us. Verse 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. God is with His people. In every moment, in every circumstance, through every trial, He is there. He is with you. Not just sort of around the corner. Not just sort of eye shots distance. Not an absentee landlord. He's there. He takes our very hand. You know, when Christy and I go on a trip with our son Joshua, when we're in a parking lot or we're in a crowded mall with people, we take him by his hand. And we don't do that just because we like to control him. We do that for his safety. We do that because we love him. If he were to to veer off course, we can pull him back. If he were to trip, to stumble and fall, we're there to hold him up. In the same way, God takes our hands and leads us. Asaph sees that God is with him and guides him by hand being held up even if he falls. And this is the God who Adam and Eve in the beginning traded for a piece of fruit. It's the same God who we, every time we sin, choose to prefer something created over God Himself, our Creator. Nevertheless, He is the one to whom we are reconciled to, brought to in our Lord Jesus. When Christ came to rescue us, just as we've celebrated at Christmas, He was given a name to tell us of the very truth of the way that He relates to His people. Matthew 1 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus Himself is God with us. Jesus Christ is God the Son taking on flesh to dwell with us, providing a way for us to be reconciled to God. For all those who would turn away from their sins and turn to God. Jesus is God with us, for us. And that's not all. Jesus, after going to the cross and offering Himself as a payment for our sins, He goes to the grave and is raised to live with the Father at the right hand. And then He promised to send His Spirit to be in His people. And so in the Gospel of Christ, we do not just have God with us. We have God in us by His Spirit. His Spirit is the one who guides us 
to everlasting life. Who marks us as an assurance of our faith. That we are true and legitimate children. To bring us to God. Peter says it this way, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Never to be cast out. Never to be apart from Him again. And so if you're here, and and maybe you would say you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've heard a lot of things about Jesus. Maybe you know intellectually a lot of things that may be true about Him, but you don't know Him. You need to know that the most horrible thing that could happen in this life is not becoming sick and dying. It's not losing your retirement. It's not never being able to buy a house. The worst thing that could happen to you is going through this life and never knowing the Savior. Never truly worshiping Him. Never turning from your sins. And never trusting in Christ to be your Savior and Lord. And walking with Him. If you want to know more about even what that would mean, I would be happy to talk with you after service. Pastor Ryan would be glad to talk with you after service about what it means to be with God through Christ. Secondly, Asaph sees this, God will guide us to glory. God will guide us to glory. Asaph writes, You guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. You know, what a change in perspective now that we see in Asaph. What, what God has brought Asaph to see in his presence, he, he's, he's reinterpreting what it means to be stricken all day long. What it, what it means to be reproved every morning. Now Asaph is realizing as he looks, he goes, oh, that's actually how you're taking me by the right hand. That's how you're guiding me with your counsel. Now, now the discipline of the Lord is, is not viewed as some kind of curse to be born. The discipline of the Lord is rather an assurance of His love. Hebrews 12 talks about how the Lord chastens the one who He loves. He strikes every son He receives. And so what Asaph sees and and he says, oh, that, that the fact that they, the wicked, aren't chastened means that they're not yours. And that's actually much more terrifying. But, but by being stricken all day, that means that I, I'm your son. You're guiding me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. The world has their riches. And every ounce of it is going to perish. I have my riches, and it's growing brighter and brighter every day. 
he he looks and he goes, oh, the the outer man, it's wasting away. But in Christ, our inner man, it's being renewed day by day. The world has its glory and it's fading. I have my glory. It's growing brighter. It's growing brighter by the minute. And it's glory to Asaph because more of God is what he wants. Because number three, God is his ultimate desire. And God is our ultimate desire. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Asaph is simply saying, why would I covet things that just simply aren't valuable? Why would I want riches and power and human praise and health and ease of life and food and clothing and things that that in and of themselves aren't evil? They're, They're not wrong in and of themselves to desire. They're just not God. They're gifts from God that lead us to God, to worship God and to give thanks to God. They're signs. They're not substance. They're, they're good, lowercase g gifts that God gives us. It, it would be like this. If I decided to take my family to the Grand Canyon and we're all excited the night before, everybody runs to bed. They wake up in the morning excited and I say, all right, family, let's go. And we gather around the kitchen table and I put a map down of the Grand Canyon. And I say, we're here. What is my family going to say to me? This is lame. This is not the Grand Canyon. But, but how many times... Do we functionally live our lives around the dining room table just being happy with the map? Being happy with the things that are meant to point us to the greater thing. Being happy with the the pictures and the images that certainly help us to understand what the Grand Canyon is is, is like. It's just not the destination. Well, Asaph is seeing that God Himself is His ultimate desire because God Himself is the author of it all. God never meant for the map to be the destination. God Himself is the destination. Because number four, number four, God is our strength and portion forever. Everything around Asaph would fail. Everything around him would fail except God. Leaders would rise and fall. Health would come and go. People would be in this in his life and then out later. Riches would go up and down. But Christ would never forsake him. David says, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. So his health, his strength, his ability, his wisdom would all fail him, but God would not fail. 
And most of all, God would not fail to satisfy him. Because he would be his portion, his inheritance. Because lastly, number five, God is our good. God is our good. Asaph says, but for me, it is good to be near God. God's goodness to Asaph was most evident not in Asaph's surrounding circumstances, but it was most evident in God's presence with Asaph. Asaph realized that the measure of God's goodness to him could not be found in temporary surroundings of this life. Though God would in fact and often give Asaph good things. Those good things would come. Those good things would go. And they would all be servants of the ultimate purpose of teaching Asaph that God and nearness to Him is our ultimate good. The glorious gift of the Gospel is God. The all-satisfying portion of God's people is God Himself. And when we comprehend, when we embrace that truth in the same way that Asaph came to embrace it, we will know God is good. And then, as Asaph says, we will proclaim Him as good. We will be ready to tell others. That's, that's why John, he writes, John the Apostle, he writes in 1 John, what we have seen and heard and believed, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you may also have fellowship with us and have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate aim and outcome of the Gospel. John says, we proclaim this to you so that you can have fellowship with God. Being with Him. Glorifying Him by being satisfied in Him. He doesn't say, we proclaim this to you so that you can come in and enjoy a peaceful and quiet life. He, he doesn't say that you can have an early retirement when you come to Jesus. Or a, even a fulfilling marriage or business success. He doesn't say that you'll get out of debt or avoid suffering. He says there's something so much better. There's something so much better. You can have fellowship with God and with His Son. So as we close, think a final question for us to ask ourselves, to think on through this week. Is it good news to me that God is the portion of His people? Is it good news to me that God is the portion of His people? As you come to understand the Gospel, is God the treasure, the, the prize, the, the portion of that Gospel to you. By all means, receive and give thanks for the many gifts that God gives us. 
but receive them as such. They're gifts. If our eyes are dazzled and tempted to prize those ultimately, we find ourselves right back where Asaph was. Envy. Misery. Not knowing and missing that God is the destination. Not the map. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that as we have just heard from You, Lord, that You would grant us help to trust You. To trust that Your words are true. To trust that there is no deceit in You. That You have no intended harm for Your people. But that You will always do us that which is good. And so, Lord, we pray that You would preserve us as Your people from being envious of the apparent success of godless people. And Father, that You would help us to walk in obedience, to give glory to our Lord Jesus who purchased us and made us Yours forever. Father, we pray that this would be for the glory of Your name and not ours. In Christ's name.